welcome to the Above Board podcast. It's just me today because Paul is not available as he's currently undergoing military training. So I've got Jordan Gull on from uh, originally from Cart Hook and now from Rally. He is an expert of the e-commerce space. You probably heard of him. He's in the Laravel space as well, and uh, he's got strong opinions about various things. He's he's on the Bootstrap Web podcast. He's uh, he's a great guy to have on this podcast, and I'm just excited to talk e-commerce with him. So welcome to the podcast, Jordan. Cool. Thanks very much for having me, Jack. And I think we'll you know I think we'll end up going beyond just e-commerce into. <laughs> You know, other topics and good on Paul. You know, when I'm away from my podcast, it's like I don't, you know, I got tired or I'm on vacation. He's he's mm. military training. That's always man. That's always legit. that guy. Hey, so I know about Cart Hook and I, I know roughly what it was. It was after purchase offers is, is effectively what it was with ridiculous levels of customization. You could just do anything, right? And that's tied into Shopify. Is that the base of what it what it was or what it is? So there's a little nuance there. Uh, our our key feature that brought people over to us and got us attention and so on was the post-purchase offers. Okay. But the product itself was not a post-purchase offer app. The product was a checkout. And the, the philosophy behind it was that the merchant should own the checkout, not the platform. When, when okay. you detach the checkout from the platform, you get a lot more freedom as the merchant because the, the platform's interest is to satisfy the, the full width of their customer base. You think about a platform like Shopify, they have literally millions of mm-hmm. stores built on it and they need to keep that checkout running as stable as possible. And what that ends up meaning is that they don't innovate that much on the checkout. The truth is that Shopify has done a far better job than other e-commerce platforms on innovating on their checkout. But even so, a small company really focused on it just does more. So what we did is we built a, an alternative checkout system that allowed merchants to use Shopify as their e-commerce platform, but then use our checkout in all these different ways that we allowed them to. Gotcha. Okay. So and, and whenever people come on this podcast, we invite them because we've heard of them. I always make the mistake of assuming that everyone's heard of you. Um, Cart Hook, was this your first business? Uh, like, it was, was it bootstrapped? Was it partially funded? Is it your first business? How did it work? So, no, it was my, I don't even know, 10th or so business. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I grew up in an immigrant entrepreneur household and that's kind of like what I, what I knew. And then I went, I went into banking and that was an obvious mistake and I ran away after a year. Mm. And then, and then I just started my own things. I started, I worked the family business. I started a whole bunch of different things. And then I got into e-commerce as a merchant myself. That's what started the journey in e-commerce. And then I sold that business off and then went into software and wanted to stick within the e-commerce world. That's when I launched Carthook and the original incarnation of Carthook was an abandoned cart app that just sends emails to abandoned carts. That's why it's called Carthook. Okay. And so on a recent yeah. episode, we talked about product market fit. I have to touch on that quickly. Sure. Did Were you solving your own problem or did you just know the space and other people's problems? How did you get that product market fit? So the initial version of Cardhook, the Man Card app, I was solving a problem that I had as a merchant. And I used to use this terrible piece of software for abandoned carts, but it made me like $3,000 every month. And I paid yeah, them like sure. 79 bucks a month. And I said, well, what if I just built a better version of that? And that was my entry point into software. I wanted to kind of keep it simple. Yeah. And it was bootstrapped and just 
one of the person and I uh, built it and then I started selling it and we did not get product market fit. We started going into a saturated market. That was, it wasn't that saturated when we started, but it became increasingly saturated. And what we were doing started becoming a feature inside of email marketing software. Mm. And so we were then very open to uh, another idea. So we ended up we ended up being one of these first hybrid bootstrappy slash fun strapping companies. So hey. Cardhook was like Rob Walling's first investment. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, I th- I think that's right. I'm like 90% sure that's right. So that that kind of tells you a lot, right? Someone who's yeah. very into bootstrapping and now runs Tiny Seed. This was our attempt to say, what if you could raise just enough money? to get going faster, but not mm-hmm. so much money that you really change the path of the company I- itself. So we raised $275,000 in our first round. Yep. Okay. So, so that's amazing. So I, I'm curious then. So I think about people like you, I think about, I mean, this, I suppose I didn't know you at the start of Carthook. I didn't know of you at the start of Carthook. Um, but to me, you're on the same level as Ruben Gomez, you know, you're playing at that kind of level. Why did you need... A outside money because you had your previous businesses you sold. Why did you need the outside money, and why did you need Rob's help? I know Rob's obviously a ridiculously smart guy, but what? How did you feel about like why did you decide to take money? Yeah, Rob. Rob was very helpful. Um, it's funny. Ruben and I are good friends. He's here in Portland, uh, as as am I. So we're in yeah. like a Slack group together. We we, we hang out. Um, so it it made sense to raise money, you know, and not put. I had already put in, I don't know, 100K or so of my of my own between development and just burning money while not doing anything else. For sure. Right. Which is actually like the most painful part, right? It's, it's less oh, the yeah. actual expenses and more the life burn mm-hmm. while not making revenue that first year. So I, <laughs> yeah. I, I invested plenty. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and then it started to make sense. And you, you know what really happened to get into a little more detail is I got an acquisition offer about a year in. But it was too early, so it wasn't really going to make sense. But talking to my friends about the acquisition offer generated some interest in them saying, hey, sounds early. Why don't I just like throw you 25K? Let's have more fun. Yeah. It was that. And then I said, okay, I guess I need like a technical co-founder if I'm going <laughs> to run a software company with other people's money. And that's when I found my, my co-founder, Ben. And then we raised a few bucks from my friends and from his friends. And that's kind of how we got started. And then a year later is when we bumped into the bigger idea, the checkout idea, instead of just the abandoned card app. That's amazing. And and Carthook was built on Laravel as well, right? Which like, yes. Find yes. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. That's right. Okay, then. So, so Carthook, Carthook was successful. I mean, I've seen, I've seen the figures of how much... Uh, volume you're processing it was absolutely ridiculous i've seen this it was, ago, it was, it was a little ridiculous <laughs> yeah we did a hundred so, million in processing the first year yeah that's and, that's nuts yes and that, and so that's not revenue that's our merchants revenue the merchants yeah, using the checkout that's still nuts it, <laughs> that's it, it sounds nuts the experience man was wild it was yeah. so hard because what happened to us speaking of product market fit is we did everything wrong from a marketing point of view. We built in stealth. We didn't tell anyone about it. And then we took the approach of, if you if you build it, they will all come. And it just so happened that that worked. And as soon as we put, <laughs> as soon as we put this thing on the market, we were overwhelmed immediately. Now, I'm, maybe I'm not giving myself enough credit. I was doing some work behind the scenes, in, specifically in the ClickFunnels Facebook group. 
because what was happening then was there was this huge migration of ClickFunnels marketers moving over to Shopify. But when you did that, you lost the power of the checkout flexibility and the post-purchase offers. So really the first version of the Carthook checkout was a bridge from ClickFunnels landing pages, sending traffic through the Carthook checkout with post-purchase offers, and then sending the order into Shopify. And that was exactly what the market wanted at that time. And you weren't blind going into this. You knew the space. So like, although you were building quietly, I think that that was another factor which would, I guess, affect the the outcome, mm-hmm. right? Because you knew the space. You weren't just guessing. You knew there was money behind it. You just said, you know, you were spending like $79 a month and making $3,000. So you knew yeah. there was going to be a demand there. Yeah, that so the 79 and 3000 that was for the abandoned card app. And that's I knew the market from being a merchant myself and related to that was the fact that I was responsible for conversion rate optimization and I did an enormous amount of optimization on the checkout itself. And then when we went to do an integration with the abandoned card app with Shopify is when I basically found myself staring at the Shopify checkout for 3 weeks saying you can't do anything you can't right. even like add a trust symbol. You can't optimize it. <laughs> and that's when it starts to dawn on me, oh, I bet there's a mountain of demand for checkout customization on Shopify. Yep. And then I found the ClickFunnels angle and I said, all right, those two together tell me I'm comfortable basically betting the company. For We had four people at that time, maybe 15K a month in revenue mm-hmm. and like 100K in the bank. <laughs> and I was wow. like, well, let's, 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 let's bet the farm. Okay, and so so this continued to grow. What what was the what was the exit like? Because you've exited this. This was acquired. I forget who acquired it. Um, but it was acquired not last year. Or was it last year or the year before? It oh, it was acquired, acquired like for like four weeks ago. <laughs> oh, it was acquired four weeks ago. So, so what's the story maybe, with the ending? Maybe what you saw was me leaving. Oh yes, yeah, that was it. Yeah, yes, yeah. and I was fine with people assuming that that was an exit. <laughs> so yeah. so here's what happened. It was, it was an incredible ride. It was the best and worst experience of my professional life by, by far on both extremes. Right. Everything that I wanted out of the experience, uh, I got in terms of like my, I built my dream company. It was like 25 people, two offices, one in Portland, one in Slovenia, I was going to Europe every few months to meet the, the team there. I became great friends with them. One of them, the CTO there, was actually our first developer hire. And Amazing. just very talented and was able to just keep scaling up in terms of like management. And now is, my, I mean, one of my best friends, <laughs> you know, if, if not my best friends who I talk to the most and now my co-founder at Rally. So that experience went from struggle with the four people and just trying to figure things out to somewhere around a million in ARR after the first year of the checkout product, and then to 2 million, and then to 4 million, and then to 6 million ARR. So it was, and really profitable. We were banging yeah. like 200K a month in profit. It was, it was awesome and, and growing like crazy. And we started getting really big merchants. But the entire time, what, what soiled the experience is that we were walking around with a guillotine over our head the entire time because right. Shopify did not like what we were doing. We were, we originally built the checkout product to process payments through their checkout system, through their payment API. They told us not to do that and that we should process the payments ourselves and use their orders API, which was a very strange thing because that meant we were going to actually going to take revenue off of the platform. 
I don't think they believed we would get anywhere because they never let us into the app store. So I think they just assumed we would kind of go away and die. But the demand was so great. We never had a sales team and we were always overwhelmed the entire time by inbound constantly. We were so overwhelmed that we had to stop taking free trials and force everyone into a demo just to slow everything down and then raise prices from 100 a month to 300 a month to 500 a month and then added a half a percent trend. We were just trying to slow it down. Yeah. And manage, you know, without making everyone upset because we, we couldn't handle the demand as such a small company. So it was great until until Shopify decided to, you know, to end it. And at some point about 18 months ago, they came to us and and shut down our API access and yeah, and and stopped us from adding new customers and put us into this crazy agreement. And you know, and when that happened, I, I knew I knew two things. I knew number one that I should sign the agreement because what's the point of just destroying everything and having them just sure. right? Th- that didn't make sense. But the other thing I knew was that I I could not operate in that environment. I was incapable after that experience to just play nice with them. So that meant I had to leave the company. So the company that I started, I, I was basically like unwilling to keep working with Shopify. So I put a new CEO in place. Emily from our team. Mm-hmm. And that's what you saw about a year and a half ago or so when, you know, I, right. I said, this is, this is my kind of last day or I'm leaving Cardhook. That's what that really meant. A new CEO is going to take over. I maintained my ownership and basically mentored Emily, but I went off and started a new company rally, which has a similar concept, but outside of Shopify. Wow. Okay. That's mm-hmm. a lot. So yep. <laughs> I want to I want to try and get spe- any specifics you're able or willing to discuss about Shopify. I'm also loving this. This is almost like a story where you've been screwed over by Shopify and you're like, fuck this. I don't want this to happen to anyone else. This shouldn't be, this is a big platform risk. We need to make it so that people don't have to face this. And it's almost like this transition into Rally by the sounds of it, where you're doing the full checkout experience. Um, uh, before we get into to talk about Rally, because I want to talk about Rally because it's great. I want to just, can you give us any details about what happened with the Shopify? Because you're not on Twitter, you know, stirring drama, getting these big viral angry tweets. So <laughs> we'll I talk about that too. What, what happened if you're, if you're willing to share what happened? Uh, I mean, you know, I can't really go that much more into detail beyond that. But the thing about it is that it's not that Shopify is some evil group of people. You For know, sure. that, that's what they do. They screw people. That, that is not the case. <laughs> okay, okay. Gotcha. The issue is that this is the nature of a centralized platform. When you are a big platform, you have a, you have a problem because you start off as a small platform. And when you have a small platform, you have no network effects. And that is the hardest thing to get going. So there's an S-curve in the life arc of a platform like Shopify and Facebook and Twitter and others. And it starts off with not much happening. And then as the S-curve, you start to climb up the S-curve is when traction happens, not just from a product point of view, but from a network point of view. So merchants join and then agencies start to migrate over because there's economic opportunity for the agencies. And then the app developers start building and that attracts more merchants, which attracts more agencies, which attracts more app developers. And then you get this beautiful cycle of everyone climbing up the S-curve, generating an enormous amount of value and everyone's winning and everyone's happy, right? This like early days, Facebook, early days, Twitter, early days, you know, name your platform. At some point though, and not coincidentally, that point usually or often 
coincides with going public. At some point, it turns and the pie doesn't grow quite the same way. And the, the relationship between the platform and its participants and its ecosystem goes from cooperation toward competition. And, and that is what's happening in the Shopify ecosystem. And we were caught up in that. And maybe we were at the tip of the spear because we were playing around right at payments, which is their business model. But this isn't just happening to us. This is happening all over the place. If you, if you look under the hood a little bit into the Shopify app ecosystem, what you'll find is fear, widespread fear. What's going to happen? Are they going to buy us? Are they going to invest in our competitor? Are they going to launch their own feature? What about this? Can we become friends with someone? Can we get listed? Why are they getting this thing? That is, this, well, this is what off. happens. And so you, you exited as CEO because you weren't willing to start playing that game because even though you had an agreement, did you still feel at risk? Like what was, why did you decide to exit? Just because of how Spotify behaved or why? Uh, no, what, what happened was that they, they limited our functionality to such a degree that I, okay. I personally found it no longer interesting, right? They basically said, you can keep your customers, mm -hmm. but you can't add any more customers. So right there, what you've done is destroyed all the enterprise value in a software company, right? If you, if you can't have growth, right? We, we had a software product that was doing $550,000 a month. Yeah. growing like crazy. And then if you stop its ability to add any new customers, you, you just destroyed all the enterprise value. You didn't destroy the cash value, right? It's still going to make money, but sure. there's no growth. There's no future. And so what they forced us to do is build a new post-purchase offer app that just focused on that one feature. And we had to build it inside of their checkout. In, in reality, what that meant is we taught them how post-purchase should work. <laughs> they built it into their API yep. and then they commoditize it. And then now there's a bunch of copycat apps all over the app store. And I had no interest in being in that, in that position personally. Gotcha. Okay. That makes complete sense. Yes. And it sucks yeah, it because as I'm saying yeah. that I feel guilty and I, you know, the team was in that place and it was really difficult. And Emily had a hell of a year kind of managing all that. <laughs> yeah, I bet. And then, and then a, a few months ago, it made sense to kind of call it a day. And the yeah. new app had gotten to a point where it made sense to sell it. And that that's what happened a few weeks ago where we sold it to a company called Pantastic. And mm -hmm. I think they're going to do a great job with it. They have a good network, but that okay. was, you know, that was not my, not my future. Yeah, that's hard, man. Uh, just the final question on Carl, and I want to move on. Um, yeah. And thanks for talking about this. I'm, I'm loving this. Um, at what point did you know you had a platform risk? Did you know this from the start or was there something or some behavior you saw that made you think, oh no, something's going to happen? It was from the very first day. <laughs> so you always knew. Fine, okay. So and and I didn't even guard. mean to. So what happened was we we found we found out that they were releasing a checkout API, mm. and what that would allow us to do was to build a customizable checkout app, but put the payments through their payment system, and that meant we weren't taking money off of their platform, and that meant like, hey, we should be able to do it. Who's when losing, we yeah. when we went to launch the app, so we we actually worked with some people on their team and and worked for months and bet the company on it, and then when we went to release it, right, like a bunch of naive, you know, like <laughs> I don't even know kids. That's what it felt like. Uh, well, we were like taking bets. Let's see how many how many downloads you think it'll get in the first month, and you know we were all yeah. optimistic because we were the, we were going to be the first customizable checkout inside of Shopify, and then when we went to release it. 
instead of getting you know into the app store, we got an email saying, we're very sorry, but you, you can't do this and we're not willing to put it into the app store. And we were like, oh, we just ruined everything. <laughs> we just lost wow. our friend's money and we just screwed the whole thing up. And then we had to basically fight to get it approved. And it was never approved in the app store. The, the compromise was basically, you can do what you're doing, but you have to use the orders API. You do the payment processing yourself and you can't be in the app store. And we just said, good enough for us. Leave us alone. Wow. And we didn't talk to them again until we processed the first hundred million. Me and Paul always make a joke of each other where we say passive income. You know, SAS being the passive income. <laughs> it's not ah. a joke. <laughs> it, it wasn't what our. Story. Some people are, you know, smarter and and more clever. We, we went through story. an enormous amount of pain for for our growth. That's that's remarkable. No, thanks for sharing that, Jordan. <laughs> it's a yeah. really good hey. story. Maybe so, a, I mean, a warning to others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you came out of this and now you're working on Rally, right? And so we're getting into this one-click checkout space. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I kind of understand it. So I understand it's like you have one one-click checkout, multiple sites can use it. There's a benefit because I'm guessing I can then pay across multiple sites easily. I'm quite naive on the space though. So could you explain, I guess, the problems, which we kind of <laughs> kind of touched on a little bit, yes. the problems you're solving and what you do? Yes, the, the, the first problem is that there has been an unbelievable amount of activity in the space. <laughs> mm -hmm. And oh, that yeah. has clouded so much. And so just the word one click, right? Like that phrase, one click checkout, it, it, it means very different things. So okay. what we do is we do not do a one click checkout. One okay. of our features is that we have a network such that when a shopper goes through our checkout once, when they come back to any other checkout in our network, they can buy very easily. Gotcha. It's much closer to shop pay than it is to like PayPal, right? So you go through the checkout once and then the next time you come back, as soon as you type your email address in, you get an SMS, you authenticate and all of your information is recalled from the vault. The difference oh, wow. between us and shop pay is that they use it to coerce people toward one platform, Shopify, yes, and yes. one processor, Shopify payments. We are the opposite. We work across all platforms and across all the processors that we integrate with. So, so even that like bit of nuance is hard to explain. What, what most people have probably heard is the two big ones in the space, the, the well-known ones, Fast and Bolt. Fast, RIP, you know, yeah. no, 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 no longer exists after a spectacular mm -hmm. flame out. Um, sure. But Fast was a one-click checkout. Fast was a PayPal competitor, a button that you could put on your site that people can buy easily with. We are not that. We are a checkout replacement. So if you have okay. WooCommerce or BigCommerce or Salesforce or something, you can use our checkout instead of the checkout given to you by the platform. And you can work with whatever payment provider you, you integrate because you integrate with Stripe, you integrate with a few other places, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Stripe and Braintree as the processors. We have a deal okay. with Square, but haven't built the integration yet. Oh, cool. And if you think about the e-commerce context, each merchant has their own unique combination of payment methods that they need for their store, their demographic, their audience. So we also integrate with the Apple Pay, Google Pay, PayPal, Afterpay, Affirm, and they can just enable it very easily. It's a it's a checkout system, a checkout platform. I think the scope of the problem is off my radar because I use uh, I use one password, right? So it's a kind of click and fill. You still have to fill stuff in. Mm -hmm. So I, would I? I wouldn't necessarily be the target demographic 
would I? Because I'm using all this nerdy stuff. Am, am I guessing right or am I misunderstanding it? You mean as a shopper? Yeah, as a shopper, yeah. Yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's one of these software products and problems that, act, that has two audiences. You have your customer, which is the merchant running an online store whose interest is making conversion as easy as possible for their customers. Right. And then you have the other audience, which is the shopper who interacts with the checkout directly on the web. And they, they just want it to be easy. As easy as yeah, possible. Yeah, easy and quick. Yeah. So for the shopper point of view, we like to give as much freedom as possible. So right here's a bunch of express payment methods. If you like Apple Pay, just click on that button. And then the idea is to capture without any friction the type of shopper that is still filling out the fields. First name, last name, city, state, zip. Right? You do that once. And then next time you come back, you don't have to do that again. As soon as you type your okay, email fine. address. I, I would use oh, that. I, yep. I would use that. Yeah. You almost don't know you're using it, <laughs> yeah, right? That's, that's cool. the, the the point is you just go through it once. And then the next time, as soon as you start the process, you fill in the first field, we identify you in the database and we say, okay, now we know your email address. Now we'll send you a text message. If you can authenticate that's you, we'll just pull up all your information directly from the vault and take you to the last step of the checkout where you can just confirm. So are you working to move people away from Shopify to, your, to use your platform? And if so, like... If you are doing that, how are you working to do that and compete with a huge company like Shopify? Yeah, it's if like a it's it's like a two phased approach is is the way I'd put it. Ultimately, yes, we want people to move away from Shopify, but that doesn't happen unless it's in their interest, right? Sure. So that's so that that's kind of the the truth of it. The first phase for our company is to go work with um, traditional platforms. So if you're a merchant on big commerce. This is now a new, a new thing that you can use, a new service. If your store is built on WooCommerce, you can now use Rally. So we are not an e-commerce platform. We work alongside your existing e-commerce platform and we upgrade your checkout experience. Oh, nice. Yes. They haven't got to completely migrate. No, they can just plug all. in this thing. That's it's right. as good as Shopify in terms of checkout experience, maybe even better. And they haven't got to upgrade the whole thing. That's right. Like in many That's ways, cool. right? We've now have some context between us here. In mm. many ways, what we're doing is ripping out the checkout experience in Shopify and bringing right. it to other people That's without cool. without them having to move to Shopify. <laughs> Look. I mean, Jack, that's the, that's I, the best I, I part of Shopify. I will have my revenge, Jack. I will have my revenge. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's right. the best part of Shopify. When I go on a site and their checkout process is awful, it, it kind of makes me sad. I think you don't know you're losing money here. The validation's awful. I mean, I just tried Rally and the validation was smooth. I missed a field, like smooth and you know everything was great. There are so many people that need this that shouldn't have to migrate to a different platform to benefit from this. Yeah. So that's that's the idea. Better conversion and better average order value and all these new features around the checkout. And, and we'll call that phase one. F phase two is where things in e-commerce are headed. And they're headed into a more decentralized, less platform-centric world. Right? What, what, where we want to see Headless go is to take power back toward the merchant, to pick and choose the solutions that are right for them. So- mm -hmm. These monolithic platforms that were built 10, 15 years ago, they offer a merchant like an all-in-one, which was fantastic in getting merchants online, a front end, a checkout, and a back end all together. But what that did is, is it restricts the amount of creativity and freedom that the merchant can have they has, because they have to use the front end from the platform. Sure. And so in a, in, a, in a headless world where we want things to go, the merchant should be able to choose whichever front end they want, whichever back end they want. And our checkout will operate almost as like a Zapier in the middle of that, 
Like I want to use builder.io or view storefront or Shogun or Next.js and do it on our own on the front end. And on the back end, I want to use Swell because that has great subscriptions built in and our, our business is built with subscriptions. So I want to use Swell on the back end. Like that version of things is where we want e-commerce to go. And we want, we want to be the default checkout for that world. Have we gone in a kind of loop? Because you know how we all started off before Shopify, we built the e-commerce sites. You might, there's a Magento, is that the one? I remember yeah. Magento being a huge one. Yes. We've then gone on to Shopify where the whole platform's there, they do everything. And now you. we're coming back with the same kind of quality. Like the quality's now, it's kind of gone through a quality improvement and it's coming back to now you taking control of it. Like why did yeah. Shopify succeed? Was it mainly because of their checkout and, and, and the ease of use or was it because of other things? Like why are we now coming back to this thing? Is it because people want that, that ownership back? I what, think this is, picture? I think it's a natural cycle on the internet. Mm. It, it goes from bundle to unbundle to bundle to unbundle, right? This, this, this ha- has happened in multiple industries and Shopify came along and did the best job of bundling everything to make it easy. Yep. And that attracted merchants. And then they built a great API with great documentation and a great app ecosystem. And that brought more merchants and more agencies. And that's when the network effect started to kick in. So now in this unbundling to get more freedom toward the merchant, these platforms like Shopify don't really have that much of an interest in, in, in losing that power. So it's a fight. Interesting. I, I love this. This is, I mean, yeah, like I said, I used the rally checkout. It, it reminded me of Shopify. It felt really smooth to use. So I could see an e-commerce site using that. I mean, this is, yeah, how is, how's rally going? How, how new is rally? So we've oh. been at it for a little over a year. We, mm-hmm. we raised a seed round last year. Uh, we raised 6 million bucks and then built the team and built the product. And now we have integrations with big commerce, WooCommerce and swell, uh, Stripe and Braintree, and we just started going to market in an early access in Q1 of this year. So now we have our first cohort of merchants. We're processing revenue. We're learning. We are now, the way I describe it is we're in the battle. Now we wow. are, a checkout product is uh, sensitive, I guess is a way to put it. You can't mess anything mm-hmm. up. If you mess anything no, up, sure. you cost sure. people money. Even if you don't mess anything up, even if you just don't properly send events to Google Analytics or to Facebook advertising, it's still not good enough. So you have you to get have it. A crappy, you got to get you it all right. crappy MVP. That's yeah, for right. sure. That's right. This for is sure. one of the mistakes that Fast made in conflating a payment solution with a checkout solution for e-commerce merchants. Right. Because, We're getting onto Fast, are we? Yeah. I mean, look, it's a, <laughs> you know, look, it's, it's, a, it's a weird topic because mm. you don't want to dance on anyone's grave. No, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And and there's a lot of people that put an enormous amount of effort into making it successful. At the same time, I would be lying if I didn't say that it was satisfying to some degree because of the way they conducted themselves. And that yeah, okay. that's a weird thing to kind of confront. And I, you know, I feel like we can get into this part of the conversation in terms of like this Twitter machine of noise and attention and what it does to you, oh, yeah. what it does for you, what it does to your competitors, how that makes you feel. It's it's a weird thing to deal with that's an added layer of business these days. Why? So, I mean, my first question, I just got to jump to this. Yeah, yeah. You said you took $6 million. I mean, why not 125? I'll take 125. <laughs> when, when we're probably ready for do a good job of it. When, though, when we're ready fair. for it. Yeah, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take 500 million. And Bolt, our other competitor, has raised over a billion. 
So there's something happening in the checkout space. It's related to this unbundling conversation. There's a new opportunity. These new checkouts in these new environments built in new ways outside of platforms, right? There's there's commerce in the metaverse coming. There's there's commerce at the point of the social uh, like network side without going to the store. There's a lot of stuff in flux. There's enormous amount of money and payments that are moving from offline to online. There's a huge, huge upside. And that's why companies like ours and Fast and Bolt are getting funded. And, you know, Bolt has done a better job at building up over time. Um, and Fast literally went too fast, right? They they kind of started scaling before they knew exactly what, what the product needed to be. I thought Fast was a CDN. Honestly, I'd seen uh, bits on Twitter, but I never knew they were a, a one-click checkout. Um, like, what did they do from the outside looking in? Like, what did they do wrong that you're not doing? I'm just because you you obviously com- technically competing companies. What are you doing differently to what they're doing that you see from the outside? Okay, so l- let's get into substance as opposed to like, well, they took too much VC or they took money from sure, strategic sure, sure. instead of this or whatever. So when when you're doing the checkout for an e-commerce merchant that sells physical products, you, you have to get a, a lot of different things right. And you need to understand the downstream impacts of the checkout. So when you process a payment, right? Payments on the internet these days are not actually that hard. The infrastructure is there. Like you don't, mm-hmm. you don't need a lot of stuff that you used to need to build 10 years ago. Not for sure. So w- the technology that Fast built was compelling because it had this network effect and you could check it very, very easily by clicking a button. Great. But the downstream impacts of a checkout in e-commerce, you have to get everything right between making sure the inventory changes properly, making sure the fraud protection works properly, making sure that the conversion tracking is done right, and onboarding merchants, and then making sure you test that. It's not, it's not a self-serve product. It's a bit intense. And if you get anything wrong at all, even if the customer loves what you're doing for them, they will turn it off because they have no choice because you're going to cost them money. So if you if you go too quickly to market and you start pushing, even if you get merchants, you still won't actually succeed, right? Fast worked really hard to get a lot of merchants and they got a decent number of merchants. But there were a few things that that didn't that didn't work, and my my thinking is that their assumptions didn't go as planned. One of those reasons is because m- my assumption is that they did not capture the percentage of revenue flowing through a, a merchant site that they expected, and the reason for that is because they built an express payment option. They did not build a full checkout, which meant the majority of shoppers could just go through the normal checkout. And if they didn't right. recognize the fast button and didn't want to click it, then fast wouldn't see that revenue. It would just go through the regular big commerce checkout or PayPal or Apple pay or something else, right? The thing that Bolt did and the thing that rally does is it's a full checkout replacement that then captures the full transaction flow of the merchant. Maybe not all of it goes through the credit card, but you're getting all of the credit. So if someone uses PayPal that's integrated with Bolt or Rally, Bolt or Rally is going to get the credit for that. So that, that's why you saw this company that you know spent a lot of money, got traction with hundreds and hundreds of merchants, thousands of merchants really, but only processed thirty million dollars because they probably mm. only captured maybe five percent of the actual transaction flow of the merchants that signed up. 
and I think I've got a view of it where you know we're bootstrappers till we die all this stuff we've got a very um profit first mentality i know this space is different even when i talk to ceos and they're talking about competing with amazon i understand there's this whole different ball game where it's not you're not chasing profit immediately you've got to do a bunch of r&d i understand it's more complex um i i'm going to purposely ask a naive question to hear your answer um why why doesn't fast just grow slowly uh, try and get some maybe not some profit, but try and break even or maybe a little bit of profit and try and do do things slowly. Why did they have to go and get so much money um, to build $125 million to start building this company properly? I, I think it's a perfectly rational decision to not go for profit and, and go for growth instead. Okay. Uh, the market rewards it. And, it's, and it's, it is rational on both sides, on both the investor front as well as the founder side of things. The market will reward uh, growth in the checkout space because they assume that the winner, the top one or two companies in the space, will end up getting an outsized portion of the market. And that is worth so much money over the next 10 years that it's, if you want to go get profit and kind of go slow, feel free, but you will, you're unlikely to win. And at least that's kind of the calculation and so if you look at if you look at Bolt, for example, that's raised a lot of money, they raised at a, a billion dollar valuation, and then roughly 12 months later raised at $11 billion valuation. Now, maybe that's frothy, maybe that's crazy, maybe it looks like it makes no sense, but it's not like people giving hundreds of millions of dollars to a company are stupid. <laughs> they they're they're making a bet. Maybe it's the wrong bet, but they are making a rational bet. And so from the founder point of view, I mean, look where, where we are right now. We are rewarded for just building a great product and a great team and not mm. really worrying about profit until much later. I like you used the word win. And I think I think it was kind of last year where my my brain transitioned into this um, VC's bad, investment's bad, into this. You need to be clear about what you're trying to do. You know, are you a company where they, they people use it as an insult? They call they used to call like lifestyle businesses an insult. Are you building a business that's there to serve you, serve your customers? Um, you know, make millions of dollars a year, or are you looking to completely disrupt a space, be one of the top one, two, five in the category, and process billions of dollars? It's very different mindsets are required. And like you used the word win, I'm thinking, yeah, Jordan's like going for the top of this space, and it just it, it reminds me of. Like, because I'm very different. I don't necessarily want to be in that space, but it doesn't mean that that, because like you need capital to build various things. And it just mm-hmm. reminds me of my, my transition that I've, I've had with regards to my thinking. It's, it's a tricky thing. And, and I've now done both, right? Yeah. Cardhook, my version of winning was a happy, healthy company that made great profit. And I could, I could effectively ignore everything that was going on in the market and just roll my eyes at it and then look back at my company and say, we're doing just fine. And I, yeah really enjoyed that version of things. Unfortunately, I hit a wall <laughs> named Shopify and I was not allowed to pursue that version of things. That's basically what happened, <laughs> you know? Okay. And with Rally, I was um, I was willing to go the other way because I saw the opportunity and acknowledged that the opportunity required extreme speed. And I you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't succeed going real slow with, you know, I, I believe that in e-commerce, I believe that. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's just, that's just it. And, and there's also, you know, a lot of calculations on the founder side and on the team side and on the expected outcome, the personal finance, like it's complicated and I don't blame 
anyone for going in either direction. As long as you know what game you're in and what game you're playing, then that's go it. accordingly. That w- that's it. Yeah. Know what game you're in. Know what yes. you're looking to do. Are you hyper competitive? Do you want to get this huge opportunity? You're going to have to make some sacrifices here and there. Um, you're going to have to be ready to, to work with investors and that yes. kind of thing. Yes. Don't get sucked into VC because it's the cool thing and that's what the smart people are doing and you want to compete with your peers. Bad idea. <laughs> Bad idea. You got you got to know yourself and know what game you're in. Right? That's that's my take on it. It's not like this ideological must bootstrap or must VC thing. Yeah. No, for sure. No, and I, like I said, I've, I've changed on that. I mean, even talking to Rob, we're not, we haven't taken any money, but I was talking to Rob, I was like, if I took money from anyone, I'd take money from Rob. We don't need money, but Rob, you know, he, he helps change my opinion. He's not even VC, is he? he's um, an incubator, an um, yeah. accelerator. Sorry. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and those new financing options that have filled in the gap between pure bootstrapping yes. and VC are hugely important for the market. And it's great that those exist now. Right. There's, there's now like a stair step, like a rainbow of options between I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to bang my head up against the wall for six months before I get any revenue. And I'm going to go raise the seed round before I even have a product. That's, there's, it's good that there's a range in between. You know, my outside view, I was just going to say this, my outside view of of fast versus, um, versus rally, you've got a wealth of experience in the e-commerce space. You didn't just casually fall into this. And the fast CEO seems like he was working with some kind of truck rental or um, he, yeah, like Uber for business. towing. That was it. Uber for yeah. towing. Like he just didn't, like you're like a, a seasoned a veteran of this space. He didn't, I'm not, I'm not having a go. I'm honestly not trying to have a go here, but it, it feels like this is your passion and you want to just go as big as you can with this. And you actually have the knowledge to uh, experience because experience helps a ton to, to push this forward. Yes. The, the, our secret, is that there is no secret and we bled for years to understand what e-commerce merchants need and you can't no one can ever take that away from us so so now let's right let's get into this other part of the conversation let's abstract one layer away from the fast rally like thing Mm -hmm. most of the people effectively everyone listening to this podcast yourself and i included are not the number one or number two in their category that gets all the attention and all the investment and all the you know, PR and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And we have to figure out how to live with our competitors getting attention and press and money and, and, and how that makes us feel this weird emotional roller coaster of your friend DMing you. Hey, did you see they launched this new feature? Did you see they just raised the round? What are you going to do about this? It is, (laughs) it is chaotic and it is really hard to keep your head on straight. And over the last few weeks with, you know, now, now the, the bolt guy, he's very good at Twitter. <laughs> I don't know how else to say oh, he's good yeah, at Twitter. He yeah. He's got it down on how to get attention and all that. And we went from the fast guy being too much hype to finally like, okay, that's going to like chill out. And now we got the bolt guy. And now we're like, how do we, how do we keep our head on straight? And th- this has been a lot of the conversation inside of our company with the leadership team. On, on how to approach this, how to think about this. Like what, what, what's your take on, you know, this, the, the noise in the public conversation and how it impacts you as a founder and you as a business? So I, I, well, I have way less experience than you, but I would tell you my take on, on Twitter because I, I do know Twitter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so people are gravitating to this bulk chat because he's, telling, he's not just telling a story, you know, a kind of calm story. He's telling a, a drama Right? Yes. When there's drama involved, our most successful post on our blog is a blog post about how someone tried to destroy our company through a DDoS attack. 
Yeah, it's, that's amazing. So, you know, over 40,000 people have read that. That's our most viral piece of content. That isn't just a, sto- a casual story. It's a story about an attack. It was a horrible attack. Um, and so that's why I think the Bolt guy's getting tons of attention. But you then have to be willing to constantly make things dramatic and because a story alone may not be enough to go viral a story will get some reactions but if we're talking just about twitter right you'd have to start if you start throwing things and you start beating on stripe and then yeah unfortunately that attention that that stuff gets rewarded with attention right but when, when something like that gets rewarded right you as the person who has not done that or isn't doing that it it can it can poke you into you know, being jealous of the attention. Maybe we should make yeah, some drama. Sure. We should talk about the Shopify thing in this more dramatic way. And it's it's yeah, almost I feel you. You have you have to consciously, at least the way we look at it, is you have to consciously like take a step back and realize that what's happening on Twitter is not what's actually happening in your business. It's not what your customers actually care about. Maybe investors do care about what happens on Twitter, but I, I don't think that sounds like a bad idea to kind of cater toward that. The only solution we have found internally is that what we need to do is maintain our vision for the future and the version of the future that we think is coming true and that we want to come true and work toward that. And that's the only way that we don't get caught up in drama and attention and pull our product in the wrong direction and build things to compete with competitors instead of what our customers want and but but it is a an ongoing challenge because it it's the hardest let you thing. I genuinely think for me, I, I can't say this as a blanket statement. It's the hardest thing in business when people rip off your ideas. Um, you know, like I've talked about this before. But people will share their MRR, and I just it just it always rubs me the wrong way because like, it's this materialistic kind of like boasting. There's no real value delivered here. And people can say it's ins- inspirational. And then they say, oh, it's transparent. It's not transparent. Like you're going to talk about just the good things and I don't really like that. And it's not, I'm not jealous, but it, it you know, the mm-hmm. exact thing you described is how I feel. Yeah. So yeah. it's not necessarily a pure jealousy. It's, it's a, you know, the feeling. Yeah, it's, it's once removed. That's right. It's not like you feel that it's aimed at you and it's making you upset. It's almost like you can kind of see through what it does to other people and you're almost upset on their behalf a little bit. Yeah. I, just, I it just doesn't gotta... feel right. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing. And so for me, we talked about this and we did a review last year and I thought about, you know, what do we need to do more of exactly what you described, focusing on shaping that product. But in addition to that, marketing it well, like we did this, I, I know you're in America, you're not going to be following all the GDPR stuff. I'm sure you're bored of that. But for us, that's a core part of our business, right? And um, when things happen over there, we did did a bunch of changes and then the changes we made ended up being beneficial. We marketed on that. We didn't just put a kind of little tweet out. We went everywhere went you know advertising in a couple places we really went all in on that so, but then again that's just focusing on the vision and marketing it so yeah i don't think getting into what competitors do is is the right thing is is that that's where you are right that's that's what we're trying yes the the, the real competition happens in the sales call when the customer is asking you about a feature that either they're currently using with a competitor or that they are talking to the other competitor about and they're asking you about, you know, like, well, they have fraud protection bundled in. What are you doing on fraud? Like that to me is where competition is real. 
in Twitter count and attention and and that sort of thing, that is if it's like a misleading type of competition that doesn't actually do that much for your business. Might do something I mean, you're for you. You're actually an example of that. I mean, you you multi million dollar business can't hook. I don't think. You're not more than ten thousand followers, right? But you're running this hugely successful. Ruben Carmes is another example. You yeah. told me he did some of his figures for signups. He's just quietly working away. I don't know what you know more about what he's doing. He's a wizard. Away. <laughs> yeah, like what, what the hell is he doing? He's got to get him on the podcast at one point. But what the hell is he doing? It's like that's he's not. You know, I think the majority know. of people are doing that, right? The majority mm-hmm. of like business owners in the U.S. are not like on Twitter boasting about what they're doing. <laughs> Right, it's it's a small fraction, but it's what's visible. Most of us are consumers of Twitter more so than we are producers, and so that's what we're consuming and seeing, and that's what the algorithm's showing us. And it's then you you get into this strange headspace that you think that's reality. And you know what helps me? I'll tell you what helps me. You know, I've, I've obviously been thinking about this over the last few weeks because of like you know I happen to find myself in like the noisiest space. On all of Twitter right now, <laughs> between fast oh, and bold. Yeah. yeah. So what I look at is I look at my family. I look mm-hmm. at my wife and my kids and I'm like, oh, I get my satisfaction and fulfillment from that. And I don't need to look to Twitter for it. And that's why I can have my head on straight. And that feels <laughs> that feels good. That feels like that feels healthy. Yes. Not that I'm immune to it. I'm human. And when I write a tweet and it gets attention, it makes me feel good. It's not that I'm like above it, but but that's the truth. The truth is like the grounding is looking at the team, looking at your family, looking at your life, mm-hmm. looking outside the window and saying, that's real. What's in the bank okay. account, what the customers are doing, like that's real. This other thing, that's, gone- this narrative is is dangerous. Well, you've just gone beyond the surface because we just spoke about looking at it and having a feeling, a reaction, seeing the surface level. Uh, you've just gone beyond the surface and actually thought about the mentality required to and how they think about that constantly chasing this approval, constantly chasing this attention, this drama. That's not necessarily a healthy individual that does that. Look, they may be perfectly healthy and this is a strategy <laughs> and they are on top of it. It's yeah, just yeah, that yeah. it's just that that's not for me. That there's they can go do it all they want. If your competitor is out there on Twitter doing a great job and like whatever, that's fine for them. It's just that it is okay for me because, um, you know, in the totality of reality, Twitter is one tiny slice. <laughs> it's t- absolutely tiny. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's awesome, man. I mean, I feel like we keep talking about <laughs> all kinds of stuff, but we covered the bulk of it. The one thing I want to finish on, if, yeah. if you're willing to go there, um, so I've spoken about Amazon before. Amazon yeah. bothers me because I like I've, I've I've compared it loosely to communism because at that size, is it really a free market when you can just dominate? It's more mm-hmm. like communism at that at that size. Why does Amazon continue to win in the e-commerce space, and can it be disrupted by people taking control of their own their own sites and? How can these people compete? Imagine we've got listeners that want to open an e-commerce site and they want to use Rally. How can they compete against Amazon? I am no Amazon expert. I am much more comfortable in the realm of uh, like individual stores and uh, right and the platforms and so on. Amazon's just the biggest factor in e-commerce, and they have overwhelmed with convenience and yeah. shoppers like convenience, and they have not just overwhelmed with the convenience, they have, 
they've put their foot down so hard on the gas to be so far ahead of everyone else in the entire experience from the purchase to the delivery that it is very, very difficult to compete with. Just the delivery system alone is for sure that is is magic it's effectively magic it should not be possible but they have made it possible and you can't just go do that on your own right this is like the vision of the shopify fulfillment network to kind of compete with that and how do you allow individual stores to get delivery within two days to compete with that like good luck man it's it's going to be really difficult and the way I look at this is it's in, a, I guess, a similar way as I look at the you know previous conversation we had about platforms um, between convenience and freedom and this like this arc. Um, it's really difficult to challenge uh, big centralized platforms at scale. Um, I think what excites me so much about Web3 and crypto is that 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 it's the first thing to come along that starts to poke at a potential challenge to these big platforms. Amazon is a real problem because it does not just exist on the internet. You can fight bits with bits. You cannot fight real delivery people in trucks getting you a product within 12 hours. You, you can't fight that with bits. So it's just a much, much more challenging problem. So like, what can, like, it, it, do you think that people have to go on both Amazon and their own store? Or do you think it's just don't even worry about Amazon, just focus on the customer offering them services in areas that Amazon can't compete, more personalized services? I think it depends on your business. If you are willing or able to ignore Shopify, or, excuse me, ignore Amazon or not. It's, uh, if I were a strong brand, I would try to avoid Amazon. Okay. The That's the issue with that is even if you do that, let's say for example, Allbirds, right, builds this great brand, and now there are copycats on Amazon for cheaper. So you can stay away, but you're still getting hurt. Um, no, yeah. I don't. Uh, I sympathize. This isn't a quick answer. There's no, oh no, there's no, there, there is no answer. Oh, and I'm definitely sure, not sure. the person to give you an answer. If, <laughs> if if I were starting a brand, I would try to avoid Amazon as much as possible. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's that's the truth of it. Yeah, I would not build independently. Sure. And be wary of, of Amazon because it's dangerous to be commoditized in that way. It's, diff it's dangerous to give them your data in that way. Um, it's a problem. It's a, it's a really difficult problem that, that brands find themselves in. And a strong enough brand, you'll go to their website and give them all your stuff and then hopefully use something like Rally as well anyway. I know I do have lots of, lots of sites. So, Okay, Jordan, I'm conscious of time. Um, thank you for coming sure. on and talking about all that stuff. You are a legend. That was a great conversation cool well thanks for having me it was a, a great conversation Thank, thanks for, for leading rallyon.com check it out everyone <laughs>